The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. Trish Hansen is the founding principal of Urban Mind Studio as a strategist and systems designer in the field of health, well-being, arts and culture. Trish works to enrich the creative and cultural life of places, neighbourhoods and cities. As a natural collaborator, complex and systems thinker and regenerative... Well, I knew I'd pause on that um, <laughs> pronunciation. Regenerative practitioner, Trish has provoked, pioneered and managed enterprises, projects, programs and quests in the tertiary adult and paediatric health, urban arts and cultural sectors. It's a mouthful, Trish, so much that you've done. Currently a Good Design Australia Ambassador, Fellow of the Centre for Conscious Design and Board Director of the Sala Festival and more. Welcome, Trish. Thank you, Debbie. Hi, everyone. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Where do we begin, Trish? I thought a nice place would be um, a quote that you've supplied to us and we can, um, we can kind of unpack things from there. So the quote is, so as you draft your intent and craft its manifest, how will you shape your image in this world and not the world in our image? What does this mean to you, Trish? Thank you for asking and that is a beautiful place to start. I guess uh, I'd also like to acknowledge that I'm on Ghana land and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging from wherever you are in, uh, in the world. I, don't, I can't see everybody on screen. And, uh, so um, thanks, Debbie, for starting with that provocation. That quote is from a piece of work, uh, performance work, that opened the recent Conscious Cities Festival which was a global festival, and that was the piece of beautifully choreographed work by Itai Palti, um, who's a, a, an architect and a, and a choreographer in, um, based in Israel. And what it's suggesting to us is that our intentions matter. And in that context, it was talking about asking us what are our intentions for our cities. Now, if we go back one and think about what are our intentions for ourselves, what are our intentions for our practice, and what are our intentions for our life at this time? That's really what this, um, what we'll get to in this session. And um, maybe a good place to start in that is to get a, do a little exercise in perspective of time. Because we are, let's face it, let's honour it, like we are at an extraordinary time in human history. And we're all feeling it. We're, and we're all um, navigating that in our own way. And believe me, in every 10 minutes, I swing from um, grieving and shame and guilt to hope and inspiration and action. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that that's where we're at and um, that it's not easy because it's ambiguous. And so how do we navigate this ambiguity? So an exercise that I found really helpful, it was actually... Uh, just in, as we're going into lockdown, it was before COVID, just before COVID, I became obsessed with this concept of biomimicry, which is design inspired by nature. It's not learning about nature, but learning from nature. And one of the founders is a woman in Montana, Montana, in the US, Janine Benyus, who uh, explained the uh, all of Earth's history 
as one calendar year. So I'm just going to talk us through that. It'll take mm -hmm. me just about a minute, but I want you to just think about that and just make yourselves comfortable because I want you to, um, to take yourselves off into Earth time. <laughs> so if you can imagine that all of Earth's history, the 4.5 billion years of Earth history is condensed into one calendar year. So the 1st of January is 4.5 billion years ago and the 31st of December at midnight is now, right now. On about the 25th of February is when life first began. And on the 28th of March, simple, those simple cells that formed in February started photosynthesizing. By mid-July, those cells developed a nucleus, which allowed them to, uh, to uh, have sex and, and um, multiply in about September. So mid-September, cells are having sex. We get this complete explosion of complex life. By November, we've got fish and fungi and land plants evolving. And early December, we've got reptiles and insects and early mammals. By mid-December, dinosaurs. 25th of December, at lunchtime, we dinosaurs become extinct. On the last day of the year, 31st of December at lunchtime, hominids walk. So apes stand up. 31st of December at 11.36 p.m., so 24 minutes to midnight, Homo sapiens. 11.59 p.m. is the last 10,000 years, which is agriculture. 11.59 p.m. and 58 seconds is the Industrial Revolution. So we've been at this business of extracting to the point of destruction for the last two seconds, which is why it does not feel natural in the slightest. Mm -hmm. And we all intuitively know it's wrong. We don't necessarily have the levers at our fingertips to make an impact mm -hmm. directly. But what I want us to do then is think about where we are right now at midnight. Within the next half a second, that's our full human life. So we find ourselves here in this place between a happening this extraordinary history and the future. In about 14 months, 5 billion years, the sun will burn out and it's all over anyway. But we've got this period now where we reflect and where we get to develop our intentions. So part of what we'll talk about today is going to take us into that. How is knowing this map that you discovered at the beginning of the year or just before covid the lockdown, how has this impacted you in the last few months? How has it shifted your thinking? Because it sounds, um, you know, we've talked about it a few times yeah. in the last couple of months and I feel like it's it's at the forefront of your your thinking every time we chat. And I'm wondering if you can unpack that. Is it just because it's, it is such a huge and incredible discovery or understanding or I'm really interested in your perspective on it? Yeah. I mean, from a very transactional perspective, it's much easier to make sense of um, a date that's got lots of zeros attached. So <laughs> as soon as you hear a date that's got billions and millions of years ago attached to it, it's much easier to work out about what time of year that happens. You know, fungi yeah. and mushrooms um, turned up in November. And that's interesting. That I can kind of get, I get that. So it makes yep. sense to me. Yeah. From a, a, a much more, I guess, a deeper level, it's really, it's many, many, many things and it's constantly, the meaning is constantly emerging. But, of course, there's our, our insignificance in this story from an evolutionary perspective, but also our significance in this, in that we've evolved into these complex cultural creatures and from the same stardust, amoebas, mushrooms and apes as everything else. And so... One of the, the um, things that I hear First Nations people from all around the world talk about regularly is that they have existed since the beginning of time. 
And I now get that. I now feel as though I have existed since the beginning of time in different forms, you know, stardust, amoebas, mushrooms, apes, and now a human. You know, we've, we've actually evolved into these cultural creatures with the capacity to ponder our purpose, to forecast our future, uh, but to, you know, we've got an insatiable need to make sense of things, which is why I think artists and makers especially have got a completely unique role in this time, which is to help us not just understand facts, but I think there is a way for artists and cultural producers and makers to take us into narratives that are too difficult to, to talk about in a way that is sensitive and gracious and honours the complexity of narratives. So I'm really, I think now is our time and I think it's time for us to step into that when we can and however we can because it's also a really intense time. Um, the other thing, of course, is um, beauty and awe and wonder and enchantment, which arts and cultural practice and, and making and design practice allows us to do. From a more pragmatic sense, I think design is the only way out and our intentions for, for our intentions that we hold for our future um, need to be provoked and need to be deepened. We need to, as a as a, um, a a species, we need to be able to grapple with the very complexity that we've actually evolved to grapple to be able to grapple with. Um, and First Nations, respectfully, First Nations have been doing that continually and adapting continually since the beginning of time. Um, they're just a few ways, yeah. There's, um, and it keeps changing every day. Uh, so yeah, thank you, Debbie, for asking. I think intention is a really, um, is a constant within your practice. And I'm wondering if you can make an observation on how you think intent might have changed in the last six months. You know, what is driving us has changed so much, whether we're artists, communicators, office workers, butchers, whatever it is, are um, the way that we view the world has, has um, tilted. Maybe our intentions have tilted as well. I'm wondering if you have any um, observations on that. Um, since as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with dignity, which is what took me into a health background initially, and that led me to arts and uh, design as a process, including design and systems design, mm -hmm. uh, design thinking and systems design. Um, but I guess what the lockdown did for me was really galvanise where I think we're at, which I think is what that Earth Time uh, project um, perspective did as well, mm. is where we're at and how we got here and this urgency um, to acknowledge that at any point, every action, every single action we take, we're either extracting or regenerating. We're, we're either taking from the planet or, or in service to the planet. Mm. And it's fascinating when we hear First Nations speak about talk, uh, working on country. And they do that with the, in fear of their spirit, you know, and in fear of their soul. Mm. There's no choice in it. Mm. You work on country because that's what you do. Whereas as humanity, generally speaking, and we all work on country in our own way, but we've generally neglected to work on city and work on, on our countries in our places, in our neighbourhoods and our streets uh, and our cities and then beyond. So, um, and to varying, to varying degrees, of course, that's a broad generalisation. But I, I guess in terms of intentions, 
it made me really clear that I'm definitely on the regenerative end. And as we've gone through COVID and I have um, been able to really think deeply about ambiguity and how we grapple with ambiguity, how we navigate ambiguity, and how that is actually the only thing that we have is ambiguity and uncertainty. Mm. So how we deal with that is fundamental to our survival. And that comes back to good wellbeing practices, having good tools available to you and um, a, a really strong insight into how we as individuals are being impacted by us being in nature and what's happening with nature at the moment. Mm. And it's making meaning, isn't it? Making meaning of all the, I guess, madness and all of the um, whatever situations we've created ourselves or designed over the last centuries or microseconds, however you view it. <laughs> it's, I think that's the artist's role, isn't it, to make meaning and to, to communicate that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, I think it's almost all we need to do is to shift our hearts and minds. And when I say us, I don't necessarily even mean us on this call. You know, we do, I think as a, as a society, as a species, we need to shift our hearts and minds back to acknowledging our place in nature as part of nature. You know, the things that we've done in these last two seconds is, um, it's atrocious. And we know that, and I can list off, you know, statistics of, of how many trees we've removed, we've removed, and, you know, species that have become extinct. But we find ourselves here, right here now at midnight, Mm. at this moment and we take one more step forward and that is what I'm most interested in mm. is the hope that's embodied within that. One of the other things I think that's particularly interesting about your practice and your approach is that it is truly global. You're working within the global sphere currently and I guess in some ways COVID has actually enabled that because it means that we have had even greater um, use of the internet, even though it's been there for a long time. For some reason, it, um, it has been highlighted even more so in the last few months. And can you tell us a little bit more about Conscious Cities and the engagements you've, you've got globally to, to make meaning, to make change? Yeah, so um, uh, my interest in Conscious Cities came about before COVID and it was really, which is why uh, my... Um, business is called Urban Mind Studio. So it's acknowledging that there is a collective conscience, that we are all shaping it every day in everything we're doing. It's not just in our minds, it's in our hearts um, and our feelings. Um, so I discovered Conscious Cities through that. And that came from Itai Palti, the, the gentleman that uh, we quoted to start this session, which is lovely. Thanks, Debbie, for, for starting there. And so he's a guy, he's an architect who became interested in the relationship between architecture and neuroscience a few years ago and um, held annual events, which culminated in a fairly major conference last year in New York, uh, which made him realise that he can still only have conversations with one city at a time. So this year, just by, by good, um, good design, he opened it up to distribute that globally for, to allow cities to step in and host their own program. So I, with um, a bunch of partners, 12 partners here in Adelaide, hosted Conscious Adelaide, and we had um, uh, sessions where, at one live session at the town hall, where we explored how cities might build trust and empathy. And some beautiful things came out of that, including um, the question, you know, what are our intentions for our city? Mm. Uh, but also uh, we talked a bit about um, move at the speed of trust, a beautiful, a beautiful saying that um, mm. I first heard from the Black Space Alliance in the UK, space designers that are, um, are um, their name is the Black Space Alliance. Mm. Um, 
move at the speed of trust and also that um, that trust is electrochemical, that it's energy, that it's an exchange of energy. Mm. We can't deny it. It's a bit mm. like having integrity. You either have it or you don't. Mm. You know, it's, this exchange is crucial mm. and we have to honour that if we have to honour that. So that, that little statement, move at the speed of trust, doesn't imply going slowly. Mm. It implies that when trust is strong, you can move really quickly, but it is crucial and anything that's, to develop without trust won't endure. So that was that was one session, but yeah, we had we had a week full of um, terrific um, uh, events. It sounds incredible, and I think that actually both quotes um, really talk about uh, a selflessness and a lack of ego, and I guess reading the room, really being responsive to what other people's needs are and at what pace you know where they're at, which I guess is something that. Um, we're all a little bit conscious of at the moment because we're all, we had a really great chat last night actually with Mish Griegel from Melbourne and she talked about us all weathering the same storm but in different boats and yeah. then we're all at slightly different, um, you know, receiving this global pandemic in slightly different ways depending on our, our privilege or our, our situation and um, I thought that was a really great analogy and I, I think the moving at the rate of trust is, is beautiful as well. Um, yeah. We have a question actually that I'm going to go to and we're, I'm really happy for us to take questions as they come through rather than waiting to the end because we're really keen for this to be a conversation between Trish and I but also between everyone that's here today. So um, just a reminder that if you'd like to ask us directly, please um, let us know in the chat and we'll turn your mic on and you can be part of the conversation. But I'm also really happy to read them as well. So the first question comes from Henry Wolf, and he Hi, said... Henry. Hey Trish, I'm interested in your comment that design might be the only way out as someone who transverses art and design. Looking at biomimicry and its aesthetic and functional reflections on natural phenomena, does design potentially only allow us to understand these issues on a surface level? That's great, Henry. Thank you. Excellent question. When we talk about design, in my mind, design is a process where we take an idea and express it in a way where it has applied value. So, so if we think of creativity as um, uh, ideas applied to create value, design is the translation of that. So where we have uh, a one in the expression of, of ideas, ingenuity is required to take that to a point of innovation. And I'm fascinated that most of the focus of, of narrative around innovation has been from from um, most of the the interactions that I have with um, governments, state governments, and federal governments, regions around innovation. It's usually spoken about as the driver of productivity. So we need to be innovative to drive productivity. What we fail to recognise, I think, time and time again, is that to to get to that point of innovation, you need design. To get to design, you need good ideas. To get mm -hmm. good ideas, you need to be curious and you need to be have diverse provocations. So mm -hmm. I think probably most of us in this room are at that far end of the spectrum um, of, of um, honouring curiosity and honouring emergence and honouring holding space and, um, and uh, and being much more comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty than probably much of the rest of the community. So um, from a design perspective, when I say I think design's the only way out, 
We designed our way into this through the design of our systems and policies and processes and structures, and especially those that have driven and the, the design of our economic systems and financial systems, uh, where we can put, we can follow um, that the wealth, the world's wealth sits with eight individuals which have the equivalent wealth of uh, four billion people. So the poorest four billion people have the same wealth as eight individuals. Now, we've designed that as a system. Arguably, it hasn't been a very insightful design, but it is by design. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I mean when I say design is our only way out. I think it is our only way out. But at the beginning of that is uh, curiosity and the expression of ideas and the expression of diverse ideas that have the capacity to hold sensitivity and complexity. How do you redesign a broken system when <laughs> the people that designed that broken system are ben benefiting from the most? Like that top, those top eight, they're, they're not going to let go of that, <laughs> that broken no. system. It's working for them. They don't see it no. as broken. Well, so I guess that's our challenge as yeah. a collective, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. And they didn't design the system. They just know how to work it. So they, they're the beneficiaries of the system that's been designed through uh, governments and, and uh, capitalism and um, consumerism. Mm. So where I think uh, the only way I think to influence the, the redesign is to influence hearts and minds of people to bring us closer to um, uh, the impact of, of, of their decisions. So when I, again, when I think of that Earth timeline, I think once we, if, if, if our leaders and our, our systems and policy designers were to see life in that way and be able to see this trajectory of the last two seconds, which has taken us off on this spin into capitalism mm. and destruction of, of our own nest, I think it's useful. I think it's an easy way to take us right there very quickly, mm. which is why I love it. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, for me it is all about design, redesign of everything. Mm. What's at the what's at the guts of that is is uh, good ideas and um, curiosity and and um, enchantment and complexity. Mm. Curiosity is something that and I think we talk about a lot as well. And I'm wondering what what drives your curiosity. It seems to come. It's such a natural thing for you, and I, I'm not sure that everyone is as curious. <laughs> and I'm. I love that about you, and I'm wondering if you can tell us how, where does that come from. Have you always know. been curious? Were you just born? Always. <laughs> always been curious. Yeah, I've always been curious, even as a child. Really, very curious. And um, uh, and humans are curious creatures, you know. So it's not hard to get tangled up in in the complexity of the human condition mm. through cur curiosity. Of course. Um, yeah, it is. Um, it's a seeking. I have an insatiable seeking, and I think um, I think most of us do, in, and it's expressed in different ways. Mm. And I think that is what we've evolved to 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 have is this seeking seeking mind and seeking spirit. And maybe there is a bit of restlessness that um, is driving it for me at the moment, which is an agitation mm. around where we're at, and really trying to work out what my place is in that, and not despair over that but focus on what I can do, you know, what is within my capability, what is within my sphere of influence mm. uh, and, and then acknowledge that even if I can take action, that I, unless I've got a grounded energy in it, it's probably not helpful. So, mm. you know, how, how do we hold ourselves 
during this time to honour where we're coming from, accept where we find ourselves, uh, as well as hold our, our power and influence gently and, mm. and do what's right as members of, of, um, of this species and oh, as part yeah. of nature. And I think that's one thing that I'm really interested in in this conversation is because we're looking at um, particularly well-being and adaptability and resilience, how do we hold our ground How do, in a time of upheaval and uh, uncertainty? How, how, what are the tools that you use or that you've seen other people use that you think um, are, are really good to discuss? Thanks for asking, Debbie. Funny you should ask that. I've had something I've prepared earlier. <laughs> There's um, a couple of, three years ago now, I was diagnosed with um, breast cancer and uh, and I'm fine now, so through the other end of the treatment, but as we know, most of us have known someone that's been through something like that and it's pretty brutal. And I had not given the potential of the diagnosis any, any attention. I went to the appointment and arranged for my son, who was 20, to pick me up after the appointment on the corner of a couple of streets opposite the hospital. I hadn't even told anybody I was at the hospital. I was really, you know, obviously in denial about what was going on. But when I found out, I had about six minutes to work out what I was going to say to him, and he was 20 years old. As a former clinician, I knew the weight of this conversation, that I, the way that I framed this conversation would frame the next few years, and I was right. So part of my brain's trying to think of the sentence that I had to say. The other part of my brain's thinking of a list of things I had to do, and they were, it was a serious list, the most serious list of my life. I'm not a list maker generally. So I'm sitting there and, you know, these minutes, six minutes, thinking uh, that it's far too big for a to-do list and too big for a sentence that I had to work out how I was going to be in this. So I thought I want grace and wisdom. They both sounded very deeply serious. So I, I figured I wanted joy and beauty and love and humour, and I, was, I knew I was going to need a lot of courage. So I sat there think, in the waiting room, you know, waiting just for a few minutes to catch my breath, thinking, how do I be these things? You know, what is, what are, how do I try them on like clothes? You know, what does grace look like? And what does humour look like? And joy. And so as I was doing this, it completely shifted my own mindset, completely, on a pin. It was, a, to me, it was miraculous. Um, and I didn't know at the time, but that is now a tool that I carry into everything I do. And I, I sat there thinking, you know, what's my, this is my design code and, and I'm going to use it. So I kept using it. And if I had treatment that was, you know, disturbing, I would spell the words. Just remembering the words took my brain off into another neural pathway that actually grounded me mm. in this moment. So it allowed me to expand and amplify and hold that space between a happening and my response. So I developed it into a little box of cards. Um, it had a lot of value for a friend, a very close friend, who um, um, uh, said that it helped them at a very difficult time, which then inspired me to do something with it. I ran that as a session during the Festival of Ideas called Being, a design code for life and being human. And it was um, so popular. It was sold out. People lined up to get in. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, was uh, with um, Free Range Futures. Uh, we did that session together with Free Range. And um, then colleagues in Sydney uh, who have a design agency loved it so much they've developed it into an app. Mm -hmm. And the app's just, we'll find out today if it's one, but the app's been um, nominated as a finalist in the um, design, uh, uh, graphic design, Australian Graphic Design Awards. 
um, and as a digital tool, but also as a um, a uh, as designed for impact. So this being being us as individuals, but being a city, being a world, being an earth, you know, what does that mean? And I'm so I've become obsessed with being. It comes back so, to intention, doesn't it? Really, you can't you can't worry and think of the words at the same time. Mm. It's a bit like snorkeling, you know. You can't. You're completely consumed. <laughs> you know. You kind of. It's it is some, it's some, it's very simple. So for me, that is one tool. Um, but there are many many tools, you know, that we um we can keep in our backpack. And mm. um, for if any of this conversation raises any issues with anybody, please seek help because it is a time where our emotions are unpredictable, and we we need to see them. As, we, as they come to us. But, you know, the obvious things, which are so easy to forget, you know, about healthy eating, good sleep, good food, looking after our gut biome, like that, they are fundamental. But then there's some other really simple tools, which, again, are really simple. They're all really simple, but we just forget to pull them out of our backpack when we need them. <laughs> um, and that's gratitude. And, again, gratitude one of those things that shifts the neural responses in your brain mm. and takes your brain into a different place so if you've got a skerrick of capacity to be grateful for something, even if it's just your in-breath, that's, it will start something. Even seeking gratitude changes your chemical responses to, to stress and other things. And as um, they say, gratitude is the attitude. Gratitude is the attitude. Yeah. And, and then there's other things, you know, journaling, expression, finding a way to express your ideas, all the things that we know. If anyone's interested in learning a bit more, I'd say the one place that where you can go to find various tools is the Wellbeing and Resilience Centre at SAMRI. They've got um, online tools that are free. They're really generously available. What you'll probably find is that you won't necessarily learn anything transformatively new, but it will affirm what you already know and it will honour what you already know and take you perhaps somewhere helpful. And I think inherently we know the tools for our own well-being, but experience or situations guide us in other directions and we kind of forget that grounding, which is why I was really interested in your um, everlasting intent or interest in intent because it, it's, it's that intent to come back to that grounding and to, to follow your gut, I guess, for your own well-being, definitely. Yeah, follow your gut. You know, I woke up this morning, when I get stressed and I can't work out what's going on in the world, I go to nature and philosophy and I read this um, article this morning which I just want to share one a couple of sentences um, by a philosopher from about 55 uh, AD called Epictetus and he was explaining that someone had asked him uh, what to do in response to being mistreated by his brother and his response was so what your task is not to have a brother who loves you which you cannot hope to succeed in, but to be a good brother yourself, which you can. And so how we extrapolate that to what's going on in the world at the moment is essentially summarised as fulfilling our roles as good citizens. So good citizens of the earth, doing what we can, even if everything goes to hell. So acknowledging that we can't control the next two seconds. We can't control the next 14 months. You know, we've got no control over that. What we can control is our own interpretation of what it is to be a good citizen and, and that's it and yeah. building tools to embrace the unpredictable really yes yeah. being strong so so being wise to where we're at you know there's and there's different ways to prepare for where we're at 
but our own resilience will be tested like never before. Mm. And arguably, we're the lucky ones, generally speaking. Yeah. You know, we, when we doesn't doesn't we don't have to look far to find people in this country and and even beyond, especially beyond, that are in much more precarious circumstances than we are. Um, not that that helps when we're grappling for for answers. But yeah, I mean, to be wise and seeking and actually brace ourselves in a um in a in a steadiness that is probably going to serve us well as uh, over these coming decades. I have a question, Trish, that's come up in the chat and a, a comment. Cynthia Schwetzik says it's very interesting how difficult it is to do the simple things, which is mm. very true. Yeah, it's um, very true. Madhu Saref uh, has commented, we're all at different level of self-evolution. It is then pertinent that we all as species work towards self-evolution to a level where it is easy to accept change, ambiguity and fluidity and cope with it more in a, in a more mature, evolved way. Changes outside happen, it's how we deal with them. Could you comment on that and how we get there? Which I guess is a little bit what we've talked about, but feel free to, to add on to that, Trish. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's really beautifully said. I think sometimes uh, it's about letting go of anything we don't have control over. And when we become completely overwhelmed with what's going on around us, it's very often because there's circumstances beyond our control and there's this discordance between what we have control over and what we don't have control over. Mm -hmm. So with that, the being tool, like developing that tool, I, for me, I thought even if I die, and that was a reality in my mind at the time, I could still be those things in my last breath. I could still be those things. In fact, that's all I had control over. Mm. is that free will to be those things. I doesn't necessarily, I succeed, but mm. I have the absolute complete control over my endeavour to be those things. And, um, and it was immediately comforting to think that even in a dying breath, I've still got something I can do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hate to be intense and end on death, but yeah, that's no, it went for me. No, yeah. not at all. I mean, I think that uh, yeah, I think that we all underestimate our own power in so many ways, and um, our own self control is definitely one of those. And what we are, yeah, how we are in every situation, I I feel like that is definitely something that um, people forget that we're completely in control of. That's within our domain, definitely. I'm I'm still very struck by your selfish. <laughs> of being in that um, position of needing to inform a loved one of what's going on and your um, instant reaction not being about yourself really but being about informing another person and I think that's an in in incredible position to be in or outset to um, provide it's it's really incredible. Another thing that we really wanted to talk about was the difference between surviving and flourishing I wonder if I can drop that for you, Trish, to yeah, respond sure. to because we've talked about that a few times. It's a really interesting... Um, it is, isn't, isn't it? And flourishing is, um, we throw it around a lot. You know, we, there's some gift stores that have named flourish, you know, I quite like that fact. You know, there's, um, we, did, we use it very broadly. My first introduction to the science of flourishing came from our thinker in residence here in Adelaide, Martin Seligman, who's the, um, uh, coined the, 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 and founded positive psychology essentially and he was our thinker in residence I think back in about 2010 2012 and he is a psychologist uh, who was seeing um, many many patients return from 
uh, deployment in the Iraq war. And what he started noticing is that people that were returning, about a third of them would uh, return and plummet into deep despair and never recover. Another third would recover over months and years to a similar emotional state to their pre-deployment emotional state. And another third would flourish and they would have better relationships and there's measurable ways, uh, subjective measures of that, just general stronger well-being. So better relationships, uh, better engagement with um, their families and, mm. and work colleagues. They have greater meaning in their lives. And it, it was a, a real test of resilience. And so he became obsessed with what are these characteristics. Now, my first question when I heard this was, what if languishing in that situation is actually the rational response? And I'm still grappling with that. Mm. because, you know, that, that um, to not be destroyed by something so overwhelming and atrocious as some of the experiences that those people would have had is still a question in my mind that I flirt with every day when I think about those of us who are impacted by some of the current happenings in the world and those that really aren't. Mm. And I've since discovered this term, I'm just trying to remember it, I think it, it's about indifference and... I can't think of the, the other word that I want to put with that, but it's really about this complete, it's a complete indifference to what's happening and a complete irrelevance and not seeing any relevance of what's going on in the world to one's actions. So I think flourishing, it's, it's a complex notion. And I, if I had to define it for myself, and I think we each have to do that for ourselves, it's really about being steady in this complex, in the complexity of, of all that exists and still having and finding the capacity to act and be active, especially when that's coming from a place not of restlessness and agitation, but a, a gentle place of love and, and care and the other good things like wonder and humour and joy. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's how I would respond to that. Thank you. And Debbie, I think there must have been something in that for you when you designed this series I'm really intrigued that this has been a series of conversations and I want to thank you for honouring dialogue. So can you tell us a little bit about your thinking in designing Revision? Oh, thank you. That's a very generous thing to, to ask. Look, I think it was a, a group curation, really, but it was born from a response to the community and knowing that this is a really difficult time particularly difficult time during a pandemic and even though that we're in South Australia and um, our, our boat is a little different to other cities, it's still a huge intellectual weight as well as a, you know, emotional and, you know, physical in terms of the, the lockdown. There's a lot to process and it's just, I think this tip of the iceberg has highlighted so many other climate change and um, financial disparity and so many other um, things to consider that artists are already trying to communicate and um, trying to connect with people over, but we felt that there was an even bigger issue, which was really just human connection and people not really having the opportunity to come together and have conversations at this time because there was that physical disconnect. And look, to be honest, some people thrive in that situation and they love being in the studio on their own and they just want to get on with it. And this has been an incredible time for them to buckle down and but it's, that's not the reality for many people and we tend to, even as introverts, tend to thrive off conversations with other people and bouncing ideas and if it's not physical communication, there has to be some other intellectual 
verbal communication that's going on. So I think the reason I really wanted this series to be interactive and to have people not just ask questions in the chat but turn on their mic and have a chat is because that's what people had been missing and we really wanted to give an opportunity for people to come together to talk about thematics that were relatable but broad enough so that you didn't have to specifically be a jeweller or specifically be a ceramicist, that you could be any type of creative and participate in the conversation. With really this particular, the summer series, um, adaptability and resilience and wellbeing being at the core because it's a December's already kind of a crazy time of year where you look back on the year anything about what you have and haven't done and it's the silly season it's <laughs> full of a thousand things to do and family and friends and that can be a really nourishing time or it can be a really lonely time and I think that's something that we you know if we can offer a time for people to come together and have these conversations then that's that's a really useful thing for Guildhouse to be able to do as not just a members-based organization but a community organization so thank you for being part of our community thank you yeah, thanks for the invitation. We that's have a great fun. question that's come through mm. from Julianne asking, what would you say about consciousness? Why have humans as a species evolved consciousness if it is so bad for the planet? Are there more forms of consciousness that are more sympathetic to the planet? I do. I think about consciousness a lot and mm. um, I'm not an expert, whatever an expert in consciousness is, because it's, you know, we've got different people claiming that space at the moment <laughs> between you know, scientists and um, metaphysicists and, and others. But I can't help but think, for me, that everything is connected. And when I, we think about dark matter and dark energy, it, which isn't matter, it's not matter, it's something we don't know what it is, we shouldn't call it matter because it's not matter. But, you know, there's so, there's so much we don't understand and there's so much that we do know about the um, intangible connections that we have with ideas and thoughts and intentions and so I think it's still an absolute mystery mm. and I think I've got no idea if we'll know more about it in my lifetime but I do trust it more and more and that's why I've at least tried to focus on intentions because I find that so often these weird happenings once I you know the people we've talked about it for years haven't we just put it out in the universe but there is something <laughs> about energy and there's something about energy that we just can't describe and we can't explain. Mm. So if there is this collective consciousness, which is something I'm deeply invested in, but if, and which may not exist, but if there is this con con connected collective consciousness, that means that our intentions matter. Of course. That means that the intentions we hold, even if they're not clear, but they're a kind of a hunch, whatever they are, whatever our intentions are for a conversation, a relationship, our practice, our work, mm. our home, our family, our, you know, you can imagine concentric circles where we're at the centre of that and we've got this, this, these intentions that we have for ourselves and, and what we do, which inform our actions and everything, but then for our, our family and our community, our neighbourhoods, our cities, our regions, our country, our planet. And beyond in the cosmos, you know, and as we venture off the planet, that's becoming more and more important. So I don't know. I think it's worth honouring, mm. even though we don't understand it. And so um, uh, I can't answer. I can't answer if there are other consciousness, are other consciousnesses. <laughs> I'd love to hear whoever asked, asked that question. I'd love to know from them if they know what their response might be to that. Because really, at the base of it, consciousness is around awareness, isn't it? And being aware. So. On that timeline that you were talking about, the consciousness is such a tie, you know, it's only 
How long has consciousness been around? We don't know. I mean, how do we not know that? How do we not know? Look at Heidi Kenyon's work with the um, the gums, you know, where the, with this electrochemical response. So, so Heidi, for those um, that might not uh, have experienced that work, where Heidi's put the sensor in uh, the soil and the sensor in on a leaf of a gum tree and the interaction with that tree, by touching the tree, you'll get a shift in the energy, the electrical, electrical chemical energy that's being passed through as the current. So how do we know that trees aren't conscious? And how do we know that dolphins aren't conscious or octopus aren't conscious? You know, and, I give, and there's more and more evidence to suggest that, that it does exist in other beings. So, yeah, I think when did it emerge? I don't know. And, you know, could, in terms of the timeline, so Homo sapiens was 11.36 p.m. Apes was somewhere in late December. Yeah, really late December, maybe even maybe even the last the last um the last day. Dinosaurs were extinct in um on the twenty fifth of December on Christmas Day. So I don't know, pretty late, pretty late. Well, if that's assuming that fungi don't have um fungi don't have a conscience. So you know, when we do look at that, when we look at that inner space, outer space, we just see so many familiarities. When you look at mycelium maps versus neural maps versus cosmic maps, you know they're kind of all very similar. Those types of consciousnesses are very much about being in sync with nature and being part of it. And Completely. Whereas the sort of consciousness we've developed as a species seems to be quite destructive to nature. And I guess it's like mm. what is the role of that consciousness if it's, you know, and the role of self-knowledge if it is ultimately about being self-destructive. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a... Yeah. yeah, something happened with conquering, didn't it? So when we got to that... That conquering spirit, that supremacy, that idea that um, what is yours, I want what is yours and I'm going to take it. Like that is really, that was a separation point, wasn't it? And um, there are still many, many First Nations language groups and tribes and, um, and, and clans and others around the world that have continually adapted in this, this contemporary way but still hold true those tenets of, of wisdom and, and practice where they are nature, they are part of the, the cosmos. But we have, you know, some of us have gone off onto a tangent of um, supremacy and dominance and, and greed and individualism and a whole range of, of cluster of behaviours that we've all been born into and we've inherited and arguably most humans on the planet are in some way beneficiaries of that, but also victims of that, and some are more, more than others. So, yeah, I think to, 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 to understand where that point was, it was probably over, you know, a thousand years period of behaviour and shifting into um, agriculture. So, so after the, you know, the last 10,000 years, agriculture was the last, uh, when was the agriculture was two minutes ago, 11.58pm. Thanks for 10, that. 10,000 years. Thanks, yeah. Julianne. We have a great comment from Heidi Canyon, another curious soul. And she says, I think for me, Trish, part of the importance of that tree work was asking questions. How can we communicate with other living things? What stories can can they or would they tell us? And how we connect in, in what ways are we similar? Heidi, you're more qualified to answer that than I am. And I think the quest, it's all about the questions, isn't it? Which is is um is uh, what so much of arts practice is all about is being in the questions. And there's a lovely saying: questions are invitations to conversations. Which I'd like to extend and say: conversations are invitations to the future. 
And so it's through these, you know, this insatiable curiosity to ask and then express either the questions or some responses to that. Yeah, so thank you, Heidi. Madhu has another comment. According to Hindu Vedantic literature, the consciousness can be dated back to development of Earth, where all condensation of energies and thoughts create the concept of duality. Further through the consciousness, there is a fine thread of connectedness between all objects. That's really beautiful. Mm, that is. So it much. really is. I think we've come to the end of our session, Trish. That hour has just flown by because it's been a rich and beautiful conversation. I would love um, before we go to kind of leave on a note on what is, what are the next steps? What is the future for you? What, what's your design code going um, into the next phase of exiting the pandemic, hopefully? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's enduring, isn't it? It's really about navigating. I've become pretty, pretty interested in what this decade is about. Mm. Um, you know, I'm at a time in my life when this decade is uh, at a time when it could frame, you know, my active professional life in some ways. And, you know, the UN are calling it the decade. So the decisions we make over this next 10 years will shape the future of everything. So I'm really focused on that 10 years. And as part of that, actually, if I can just give a plug, there's a, um, a movement uh, called Culture Declares, which has started in the UK about a year ago through the major institutions, Tate, etc where they um, are inviting people from around the world to declare uh, support for action around the climate emergency. If you just Google climate declares and see if there's something there for you, but I can't help but think if all of the world's artists and cultural producers focus for just a minute, like 12 months, on their rich and complex narratives that have got us to where we are now and how we might emerge from that, we would emerge changed It'd be like reading a Dr. Seuss book. You'd kind of go in, get messy, come out, change. And I think Culture Declares is a really great platform for us to think about what is our response to what's going on and then share that with others around the world and also get inspiration and support from others around the world. So that, that movement has inspired um, a movement of architects, Declare, which has inspired a movement of engineers declare and there may be a, a Culture Declares Australia movement. It depends if anybody's out there that wants to support co-hosting that as coordinators. It's really about network weaving more than anything, I think. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's worth checking out. Uh, so, yeah, my action will be focused on regeneration. I just know that I, I'm just on, on that side of things and I, I can't not be that. That's a really beautiful and poignant uh, place to end, I think, is regeneration. Thank you so much for your observation, yeah. Trish, and your insight. It's always uh, a pleasure to chat to you and to unpack your brain. <laughs> Thank you kindly. Thank you, Trish. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.